We'll turn with me, if you would, to the book of Joel, as we're continuing our series. It's now moved from the morning to the evening for this and for the next one, the final one in our series on the book of Joel, this minor prophet that has some very famous passages, but overall we probably don't hear very much about uh, as we come to the book of Joel. So I'll begin reading in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 32, and our text will go down through chapter 3 and verse 16. So Joel, Joel chapter 2, 32, through Joel 3 and verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away. For the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earthquake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Since the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us. Let's go to him once more in a time of prayer this evening. Our Father, we thank you for this prophecy of Joel that you gave to this man all these thousands of years ago. We thank you, Father, for the fact that it reveals you most clearly to us, that it shows us not only your wrath against sin, but also your refuge and your salvation, your grace to those who flee to you. We pray that your spirit would illumine us to understand these things, to see more of you, to see more of Christ in it, and to respond appropriately. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come now to Joel at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Joel is coming quickly to the end of his prophecy. And it's not long by any stretch of the imagination, especially when you compare it to prophetical books like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, especially, where there are many prophecies that span over a period of years, even as the prophet is ministering to the people of God. It seems that Joel's prophecies all came at once. 
and now he's coming close to the end. And in fact, if we were to read through Joel from beginning to end, we'd see that there's quite a growth that happens, quite uh, a fascinating turn that happens in the middle of Joel. Because if you remember that when we came to Joel at the beginning, Joel is coming to the people of Judah after they've dealt with a severe infestation of locusts. A swarm has come in, a plague has come in, and stripped even the bark off the trees. And Joel is coming in and not only reminding the people that this happened, because how could they forget, certainly, but also telling them what it means. He's giving them the interpretation. He's pulling back the curtain, as it were, and showing them what God is doing through these things, that God is attempting to get his people's attention because they have been rejecting him. They have been neglecting him. They have been just following through with the motions. They have just been paying him lip service. And he reminds them that God is himself gracious and merciful, that God is the God who will receive those who repent, who come to him in faith. He's calling them to lean into those promises that God has given, not only to them, but to their fathers and to their fathers before them. That this faithful God remains faithful even in the midst of these things. And then we begin to see in the second half of Joel that the uh, script is flipped. We see that Joel begins to come and bring a different kind of word to God's people. And he brings a different sort of message to those who are listening. That these locusts were always meant to point to something else. That this swarm was meant to point to the end of days, to the day of days, to the day of the Lord, to the last judgment. And it was always also supposed to be a representation of Israel's enemies. And now as we come to the end, we see that things have taken quite a turn. That God is revealing himself. And perhaps it's helpful for us to remember that when we come to scripture, what God is doing is he is revealing himself in very specific ways. He wants us to see certain things about ourselves. And I realize that seems very basic to many of us. But sometimes we have to let it hit us. Sometimes we have to recognize that this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. This is what he wants us to know. And we'll see this evening that the only refuge when God goes to war is God himself. He wants us to understand these things. So we'll have three headings. We'll come to them each in turn. The first is the great reversal, especially as we see it in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, as God is beginning to prophesy not only to Judah, but also against the nations, some of the nations who are surrounding them. And we see that this first reversal that happens is, Behold, in that days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And so what the first thing is that is reversed here is that God is gathering those who have scattered his people. Now, again, it's difficult for us to understand exactly which historical setting, historical context is especially in Joel's view. We have some details, but not very many to go off of. This could have been a number of different times that these nations have done these things to Israel. It could refer to perhaps the exile as a whole or to other wars, other conquests that had happened on a smaller scale in Israel's history. But we see here that there are these nations who have acted unjustly. These nations have come in and they have done evil things, malicious things to God's people. We see some of the things that Joel says that they have done with boys and girls and selling them into slavery. And why? And it just makes us shudder to understand that this is what has happened, not only to God's people themselves, but to the least among God's people, to the weakest of those, to those who they would see as least important. And so we see that there is something here that is going on here, that God is going to switch this around because it needs to be switched. Because these evil things have been done and they need to be dealt with. 
Because God's people have been scattered and they need to be brought back into Jerusalem. And what God is going to do to do that is not only to bring his people in, but he's going to gather the nations as well. He's going to gather those who have done these things to his people. He's going to bring them into judgment, both for his people's good and for his own glory. And notice how he uses the language of paying back. Especially starting in verse 4, there seems to be a slightly new section here. As he's really taking aim at three particular groups, as we could see them. Three ancient peoples of Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, or the Philistines, as we often know them. Boys and girls, we recognize, don't we, as we read the Old Testament, that the Philistines are popping up again and again. We think of Goliath, we think of many of the enemies of David. We think of all those who were killed by Samson in the various different ways at the end of Judges. That these are ultimate enemies of God. That the Philistines' names come up again and again and again throughout the Old Testament as a way to basically categorize God's enemies as a whole. We can ask, who are Tyre and Sidon? What exactly are these nations? Because we know if we were to go to a map, we wouldn't find nations with these names anymore. And we're going to find out why here in just a minute. But who were these people? Why are they uh, placed here in such a Interesting position. Why are they singled out among these nations? Why is God saying these things to these three? Well, these three nations all had uh, seaports on the Mediterranean. They all had a very lucrative way of getting goods and things to and from other nations. And it seems that what they had been doing is taking slaves from the people of Judah, from God's people, selling them into slavery, bringing them up to the Greeks in modern-day Turkey, and selling them there. Now, these three particularly were very egregiously sinning against God's people, that they were doing these awful and terrible things. And again, it's difficult to nail these down to specific historical events. It seems like this was an ongoing thing that had been happening again and again. Perhaps there were raids or some larger war or something that ended, ended up this way. But what they were doing is they were taking God's people and they were shipping them far away basically making it so that they could not come back, making it so that they were scattered in their minds forever, and God said he was going to pay these back. He was going to pay back these nations that had done these things to his people. He asked, why are they doing these things? Are they paying him back? And if so, he would certainly pay them back. He's going to turn this curse that they brought on his people around and bring it on their own heads. It reminds us perhaps of what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And that's what Joel is proclaiming here in this great reversal. God will pay back the enemies of his people in the same way that they have done these awful things to God's people in the first place. And we can ask why. Well, God makes it very clear that crimes against his people are crimes against him himself. He says that in verses 2 and 3 most clearly. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, you have divided up my land, have cast lots for my people. He's very clearly identifying them as his own special possession. That God's people are his own and things that are done against God's people are things that are done against God himself. Joel is making that very clear. The Lord is making that very clear through Joel. And so God is going to bring these judgments on these people. He's going to bring judgment on these nations. And we can ask, well, how did he do that? Well, it's a little difficult for us to know. We know that they're no longer existing. We know that God uh, carried out his word here. It could be that this happened during the Babylonian invasion as a lot of other nations other than Judah suffered at that time. It could be that when Alexander the Great came and he basically gave the final death blow to some of these nations that this 
fulfillment of this prophecy came in, we aren't entirely sure exactly. But we know that God has fulfilled it. We know that these nations are no more. We know that they have been paid back, that they have been given really the last exile, as we consider it. In verses 7 and 8, we have them getting a taste of their own medicine, that those who scatter God's people are themselves scattered to the winds. That instead of being sold to the east, as the people of God had, they would be sold to the Sabaeans, to those who are off to the east, to those who are off in the desert. That God would take these things and make them right. But of course, by this point in Joel, we know that this is pointing to something far greater than just an historical event taking place. Something far greater than just something that happened in the ancient Near Eastern world to these three nations and to these cities who were doing these terrible things to God's people. That this is pointing ahead to the end. This is pointing ahead not just to an exile from your homeland and from your city and from your nation. This is pointing ahead to an exile from God's presence himself. Pointing ahead to the great exile, to the last exile, to eternity in hell, in judgment, in wrath for the sins committed against God. We can begin to see that as we get deeper into Joel chapter 3. But what does God want us to take away from this? It seems like some strange verses at first, doesn't it? When we read through them and we think, what exactly are we supposed to mean by this? What are we to understand by these things that God is saying? What is he wanting us to know and to respond because of these things? Well, it seems that the most clear thing, the most basic thing here, is to take heart. Because although God's people have suffered, God's people will suffer. We know that it's going to be something that will happen, that injustices will be fixed. That the things done against God's people are done against God himself. And that persecutions, as they have arisen, and they will be arising even in our own day, as they have in places like North Korea and China and Iran, that these injustices will be solved. That God will do what he said. And if you wonder, will God fulfill his word? Will he carry out what he says he was going to do? Remember Tyre and Sidon and Philistia. Remember that they are not here anymore. Remember that God has done exactly what it is that he has proclaimed that he would do for his people. That he has turned their enemies' hatred upon their own heads. This, of course, is always leading to something else. Always leading to something greater. And that's our second main heading this evening. The great war in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 3. We come now to this point in the beginning and end of Joel, we see that oftentimes the prophet goes between prose and poetry. And oftentimes in the ESV, at least, you can see that there's a different uh, setting, a different typeface, a different uh, way of outlining this that you can see there. Starting in verse 9, we have these words that are in a different setting than those verses that came before. That's because now we're in poetry. Now we're seeing things with more of a fanciful eye. And what is God describing when he brings poetry in? Well, he's describing here this last day, this last war, this great conquest that God is going to bring about. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 15 here. That God is calling these people together, and not for good purposes as far as they would see it, but for judgment. And he tells them, first of all, in verses 9 and 10, to prepare. He tells his prophet, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am a warrior. And so what God is doing here is he's telling these nations, come here, gather together, 
Come in war. Come to fight. Come with your weapons and come to judgment. It's a call that God is bringing to these people who have rebelled against him, who have sinned against him. Boys and girls, perhaps you've done something wrong in your lives. I'm guessing you have, if you're anything like the rest of us. And when your parents find out about it, what is one thing that they might say if you're not right there next to them? Come here. Now, is that a happy come here? Is that something that's going to lead to your excitement? No. You recognize that punishment, that this is coming to something that's not going to be enjoyable for you and you deserve it. That's essentially what God is doing here. He's calling these nations together, but not as a father, but as a judge. Not as one who's going to show grace and mercy to them, but who's going to show wrath and judgment in his righteousness and his justice to these people. He is galling them together. He is telling them to consecrate themselves in verse 9, to come into God's presence. That's the word that we often find when the priests are going to consecrate themselves, the people are going to consecrate themselves, to purify themselves, to do these things in this certain order that God has prescribed in order to come into God's very presence. And oftentimes it has to do with blessing. Here God is telling these people to consecrate themselves, to come into his presence for destruction. It's quite shocking language. Consecrate yourselves to come into my presence and know that you will be judged. And this is a call that's going out to all those who have rebelled against God, who are not repenting of their sins, who are not trusting in Yahweh, who are not trusting, as we could say today, in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Because of what we see there in verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your prunes, pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. What he is saying here is, there are not enough weapons for everyone to come, so make your own. He is gathering all people. He is gathering all of his enemies together in one place. It's the opposite of what we read, for example, in uh, places like Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4, where the opposite happens as God's blessing and and, uh, generosity and love comes to the entire earth, and no longer are people training for war anymore. But here it's the opposite. The implements of peace are being turned into implements of war. Even the weak, even the weakling, perhaps as we could say, is told to come and to pretend to be a warrior, to come to the place of judgment, and that's what God is calling them to do. We can ask, what is the valley of Jehoshaphat that God promises to bring these people to? Well, we aren't entirely sure. Again, in Joel, it's difficult to exactly nail down what valley this is, because we don't really find it in other places in Scripture. But we know that what the name means is the valley basically where the Lord judges. The valley where Yahweh judges. And he tells these people in verse 10 to hasten to come. To come quickly, essentially. Because this judgment, as we see it here, has delayed long enough. That there is no more putting this off. There is no more running from this. That the end has come. The day has come. And this is a day in the cosmic courtroom. That God, the Lord, the one who created all things, the holy, holy, holy one, the righteous one, the just one, is holding court. That all of his enemies are called to come into his presence and he will judge them there. It's really quite a somber call, isn't it? All the death and destruction, all the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation that is coming. We can think perhaps of the nations who think that they themselves are calling themselves together and coming as in Psalm 2. And what does God do? As they gather all their armies and their power and their mights, he laughs. He holds them in derision because they are attempting to do the impossible. 
They're coming together not really for a war as we would think about it, for a battle as we would think about it, but really for a slaughter. God uses the language of a harvest in verses 13 through 15, especially in verse 13. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. That picture is meant to be quite eye-opening for us. Because keep in mind the context of Joel. As he's coming to these people who have no harvest, who aren't sure exactly where their next meal is going to come from, although they know that God has promised that he will bless them with the crops that they need, now he is using this language of harvest, of a bountiful harvest for judgment. A sickle and a wine press used to describe those who are coming in their multitudes to essentially be destroyed. It's meant to be language that really gets our attention, that grabs a hold of us, that shows these things. It's a harvest of wrath instead of joy. It's sometimes difficult for us to understand in our modern world that is uh, slightly different, of course, in many ways than theirs would have been. But in those days, the time of harvest was a time of joy and celebration as the harvest comes in. Because you see God's faithfulness to you most clearly in those times. You can understand that you have food and you have drink now for another season, that God has provided all these things for you. This is like an anti-harvest. Instead of joy and gathering together for celebration, it's terror and gathering together for destruction. Those words that we have in, the, in verse 14 translated as multitudes, multitudes, sometimes we could perhaps even translate that as tumult or chaos. It's meant to be this idea of shaking and loud noise. Perhaps you've ever, have you ever heard a fighter jet coming in low over you? I remember when I was a kid growing up in a military town, whenever the Air Force uh, Thunderbirds or the Navy Blue Angels would come in for our annual air show, you'd hear them even before you saw them. You knew generally which direction they were coming from. And as they came in lower and lower and they came in fast over you, you could feel it even reverberating in your chest cavity. And suddenly you understood as loud as you could yell, this was noise on a different level. That's that sort of idea that's being brought to the bear here. That these are the kinds of things that are happening to these people. That they are coming in, experiencing tumult and noise and shaking. That these things are coming to pass and they are terrifying. And they are massive and they are ultimately unstoppable. And in verse 15 we see those, those familiar ideas of what happens to creation when God comes in judgment. That the sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. It's an idea of there's nowhere to hide. That this is creation itself responding to its creator come in judgment. And so what, if the cosmos is doing this, what can those who are mere mortals do against him? How can they possibly stand? It's like if you're in the middle of an earthquake and all the creation around you seems to be moving and shaking and you aren't entirely sure what to do, especially if you're not used to that, you aren't from an area that experiences them very much. You realize that you are at the mercy of the elements there. That things could crack and crash. They could come down around you and you'd have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. That's this idea that Joel is bringing to us. That God is bringing to us. This is how God is revealing himself. He's revealing himself as, in a real sense, the great one who comes in judgment. 
as the one who comes and brings wrath and condemnation on the last day, who calls all these people together into his presence and executes judgment on them as the king who sits above these things, as the judge who sits in judgment there above them, the one who is just, the one who is holy, the one who will not clear the guilty who are not repenting, who are not trusting in him for their salvation. This is how God reveals himself to us. But in this section of Joel, that's not the main point. In this section of Joel, there's something else going on as well. We have all these words describing terror and judgment and wrath and condemnation. All these words describing the things that God will do to his enemies and to the enemies of his people. But we see that they are bookended here. That brings us to our final heading, the great refuge. We've seen the great reversal and the great war, but God himself is the great refuge. We started out with with reading chapter 2 and verse 32 and ended with chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to those verses again. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So what is happening here? As God is bringing this prophetic message to his people, why is this message of condemnation and judgment and war and destruction, why is it bookended by these two things? Well, because God wants us to truly remember the fact that he is a refuge for his people. That even in the midst of these things, that is where we find salvation. Even in the midst of these things, we can take comfort and understand that our God is a God who saves. It's a strange concept to us, isn't it? We find it sometimes in the Bible that salvation comes in the midst of judgment. That the people of Israel walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and the people and the uh, Egyptians who come after them are destroyed. And we find that coming up again and again and again, even in the cross of Christ, that as judgment is poured out, salvation comes to those who trust in God, to those who trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. And so even as Joel brings this message of comfort, this message of blessing to his people, it comes in the context of judgment, but it's meant to bring comfort to us. It's meant to bring comfort to the people of God, to those who perhaps are suffering in different ways, who have gone through perhaps some of the persecutions that we read about even in the beginning of Joel chapter 3, but who know that one day these things will come to an end. God is revealing himself not only as a God of judgment and wrath, a God who is just and righteous and holy, but also a God who is glorious in his mercy and grace, in the fact that he is truly a refuge for his people. Ultimately, we see this in even our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the one to whom we are to flee. That he is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. That on the last day, as we consider these things, we know that these things will come to pass. Whether they come to pass exactly as we've read them is a different question, as God is going to use much imagery in the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe things that we could not understand otherwise. But we know these things are coming. That even as judgment came on Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, so judgment is coming on the entire earth. That God is coming against his enemies and the enemies of his people. 
And that ultimately, even as God has revealed himself in these twofold ways in Scripture, that there are two ways to know the Lord on the last day. You can know him as the one who has called you there for destruction, who has called you there in wrath, who has called you there as the judge of all judges. Or you can know him as the one who roars from Zion, but you are safe in Jerusalem, that you are safe in him, in his refuge. And so God is calling us here to consider these things. We know that when Christ returns, all will see him, and he'll see all of us. And the question is, will he see us in him or not? Will we be those who are trusting in Christ and Christ alone or those who are outside of him? Will we be those who are in his kingdom and in Jerusalem as it's presented to us here or those who are outside? That God is going to gather all, some to judgment and some to blessing. But we can know that even in the midst of this bad situation, as we consider it, even as the cosmos and all creation is shaking and looking like it's going to come apart and darkness is coming in and all these things are happening all at once, that we have the judge on our side, those of us who are trusting in Christ. That we can know that he is truly our refuge. In Acts chapter 17, we read these words, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God is calling us to recognize tonight, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is the one who judges. That Jesus Christ is the one who comes in war at the end, in conquest at the end, in judgment at the end, that he is the judge of all judges. And that he is also our refuge. That those who repent and call upon his name, who call upon the name of the Lord, will be rescued. They will have safety in the midst of these things. As defenseless as we are on our own, and we see that from what happened to the people of God in the beginning of Joel chapter 3. That the Lord himself is our refuge. The one who can make heaven and earth shake and tremble in terror is the one who keeps us safe. You read in Isaiah, or in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble. And what a comfort, what a wonderful blessing that is to know. God is calling us, as He calls all people, to repent and to trust in His name, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to know that He has overcome the things that we could not overcome, that He has saved us from the wrath of God, that He has been our righteousness and He has obeyed the law perfectly in our place. That all who call upon His name have a true and sincere refuge. That we have an understanding that even though these things are on the way, even though these things are coming, that we are to flee to this refuge. And that's what God is calling us to do. To flee to Christ. To call on the name of this Savior. To pray for his kingdom to come. Because when God himself comes in war, the only refuge is God himself. But he's calling us to believe. He's calling us to repent. Because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so as you come to Joel in the years and decades to come, as you read these words, remember, God certainly comes in judgment. But he is also a great refuge for his people in Jesus Christ. And he calls us to enter in. He calls us to trust in him. He calls us to take heart, even while creation itself is shaking. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the comfort that this book of Joel brings to us, often in unlooked-for ways. We know, Lord, that these are not things that perhaps we think about quite often, 
but we consider the promises that you have made to us in Jesus Christ, and we are truly thankful for them. We know that the end is one day coming, a day that we do not know the day or the hour of, but we know, Lord, that Christ will come in judgment. He will return as judge, but we also know he will return as Savior and as Redeemer for those who are trusting in him. We pray that you would keep our eyes upon him, even in the midst of this life, even in the midst of this world that is often against him. We thank you, Lord, for these blessings that we have in his name. We pray these things in his name. Amen.